Let's join in prayer as we prepare our hearts for this study of God's word. Let's pray. Father, you're the one who needs to speak. And you're the one who must enable us to hear and apply your truth. We wait upon your word and your spirit to give the guidance that we need to glorify you day by day. All to the honour of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. In our previous studies, we've discovered so far that through a series of events, each saturated by sin, Esther is now the queen of Persia. And we understand that behind the flawed and foolish decisions of men, God is working out his great and good purposes in what we call his providence. The Shorter Catechism, question 11 asks, what are God's works of providence? And it answers, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And while there has been plenty of evidence in these opening chapters of the glory of man in the op opulent palace and the lavish parties thrown by King Ahasuerus, we can see as the Holy Spirit gives us sight, the infinitely greater glory of God on display as he shows his hand to be at work in the affairs of even the most mighty of men. In all that unfolds, he is the grand master. He's maneuvering the pieces on the great chessboard of history and even as he consistently does, utilizing the wickedness of this world for his cause. God is in control of all things. The 19th century American Presbyterian, William S. Plummer, put it like this. He said, God's providence is powerful. It is so powerful that it even brings good out of evil, making bad men and fallen angels to serve God's designs, while they intend no such thing giving the greatest efficiency to causes most contemptible and infallibly securing the very best ends. All conspiracies and combinations against providence are vain. He who rejects the mystery of providence must ever be in perplexity. This doctrine of God's providence is difficult but beautiful. And we, we need to wrestle with the tension of the words, for example, of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, section 1, which read that God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. In other words, everyone in this unfolding drama is responsible for his or her own actions. Yet God is ultimately in control while not the author nor the source of their sin. He is still sovereignly weaving even these dark threads to become a beautiful tapestry for his glory. And as we turn to those few short verses that Judith read for us, there are, there are lots of things that we don't know or don't understand here. 
We don't know why there is mention of, of, of virgins being gathered for a second time. Was this a further part of Ahasuerus' scheme to ensure that every single good-looking girl across his vast empire was available for his pleasure alone? We don't know. It doesn't impact our interpretation of these events that follow, but it's in the Bible. There must have been a reason, but I'm afraid I can't explain it to you. Secondly, we, we do not know why Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. The gates of Susa were, as recent archaeological discoveries have, have unearthed, vast. And it seems that they were locations where judicial functions were fulfilled, where, where court was held. It may have been that Mordecai already had a, a position within the court system, remembering that many of the Jewish exiles appear to have had positions of power within the Babylonian or Persian civil service. It may have been that with Esther's elevation to the queen, he was given a position, a promotion. Or it may have been that simply this was the closest that he, as her guardian, could get to Esther. So he spent time there listening out, for news of her well-being. We don't know why, but we know he was there, sitting at the king's gate. And I think the ambiguity, the uncertainty of these lesser details of, of the story are, is a really helpful thing. It causes us to remember that while the unfolding events may be puzzling to us, God is not perplexed. He is in control. He sees and knows and is working everything for his glory and for the good of his people. And in these days, when it's so difficult for us to make sense, when, when everything seems to be so puzzling that's happening in our, in our land, in our world, we need to remember that in all of these unfolding events, while they may be confusing for us, God is not perplexed. He is in control and he is still working everything out for his glory and for the good of his people. And we must learn to rest assured in this knowledge. So I want to focus on two things from this passage, two things that we do know. And the first of these is we know about Esther's undercover identity. Esther's undercover identity. Verse 20. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai has commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. At the direction of her guardian, showing great respect and humility towards Mordecai, even while she was queen of the greatest empire in the world at that time, Esther was careful not to let her Jewish heritage be known. And we're not told of what specific compromises she was required to make. It seems likely that adherence to Jewish rituals such as eating only kosher food or uh, regulations about ceremonial cleanliness, these ought to have distinguished her from the pagan people about her. And we're caused to ask. Did her progress in the kingdom of Ahasuerus mean that she had to deny her identity as part of the kingdom of God? Did her newfound relationship with the king of Persia mean that she had to deny her relationship with the king of heaven? Mark chapter 8 ends with Jesus making it very clear the cost of being a disciple. And he states in Mark 8 verse 38. 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angel? And we wonder, was Esther ashamed of her Jewishness? Would she face judgment before God for this? Well, I think it's helpful to to recognize that there are other renderings than that which we see in the ESV that I use. For example, in the King James Version, Esther 2 and 20 reads, Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people. Or the Good News Bible puts it like this, As for Esther, she had still not let it be known that she was Jewish. You see, there would come a time when it would be both right and fitting for Esther to reveal her Jewish lineage. But this was not yet the time. And there's a a simple rule that, that Christians ought to apply on this principle. That is, when, when you feel in your flesh that you really want to tell people that you're a Christian to put them right or whatever, you should probably in those situations keep that information to yourself. And when you feel in your flesh that you don't want people to know that you're a Christian, well then, you really should speak up and let it be known. Now, it ought to be the case that the consistent manner of your life, the way you speak and act towards others, should be more than enough evidence for people to know without any doubt that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And it is inevitable that if you live in such a way, there will be those times when you'll be both mocked or or marginalized by those around you. But you can face this with joy. You can look forward to an eternal reward, knowing that in the last day, your Savior will warmly welcome you into his eternal presence. Whether or not Esther behaved in a God-honoring manner is in the court of the king is not really the important issue. What matters for us is to remember again and again that God is in control. He is overruling. He is working out his greater purposes. And he delights to use us. Not because we have it all worked out and we are just what he needs for the task. No, he uses us in spite of our weaknesses and feelings, so that all the glory will go to him alone. As Steve Brown comments, God only fights battles with wounded soldiers. Edith Stein was a converted Jew. Before she lost her life gassed at Auschwitz, she wrote a letter testifying to the comfort that she found in reading the book of Esther. She wrote these words. I always have to think of Queen Esther, who was taken away from her people for the express purpose of standing before the king for her people. I am the very poor, weak and small Esther, but the king who selected me is infinitely greater and more merciful. It may or may not be that Esther was wrong to blend in with the empire and to keep her identity undercover. But God was not frustrated and he would use even this for the purposes of his glory and the protection of his people, as we'll see as the story progresses. Esther's undercover identity and secondly, Mordecai's uncovering intrigue. Mordecai's uncovering intrigue. As William Shakespeare wisely noted in Henry IV, part two, 
uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. Ahasuerus is greatly concerned for his own personal safety, and rightly so, as eventually he would be murdered by the captain of his bodyguard. If ever someone failed to live up to his job description, it was this man. And we read here verses 21 to 23. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Ahasuerus had just thrown the mother of all parties for six months. He had offered ample tax rebates. He had distributed gifts with royal generosity. What's not to love about such a munificent king? But obviously not everyone was a fan. A plot was hatched to take his life. And it just so happens that Mordecai was in the right place at the right time to overhear and then to report the plot. An investigation follows. The perpetrators were executed. A careful record was made in the King's Chronicles and then, and then nothing. Indeed, the next thing we discover in the, is very much the opposite of what we might have expected. If you glimpse ahead into chapter 3, we find it's a man called Haman not Mordecai, who is promoted. And it's really important for us to know that Ahasuerus was absolutely obsessed with record keeping. And he was particularly concerned for good reason, that loyalty to his throne be highly honoured. The ancient Greek historian Herodotus informs us that at one battle, whenever he saw any of his own captains perform any worthy exploit, he inquired concerning him and the man's name was taken down by the scribes together with the names of his father and his city. Ahasuerus loved to keep records of people who did good things for him and his kingdom. And the recording of Mordecai's help and the uncovering of this plot was to be expected. But the failure to reward him for his service was a grave administrative oversight. This ought not to have happened, but it did. And those who know the story recognize why this usually thoroughly effective governmental administration failed on this occasion. Because at the right time, in God's great plan, in the mystery of his providence, Mordecai's reward and recognition would come. And the benefits would not be his alone, but would be for the saving of his people and the glory of God. And this is the lesson that we must apply. Whatever costs we may have to bear when standing up or sticking out as followers of Jesus Christ in this fallen world, at the appropriate time, we will be richly rewarded for our loyalty to our King. We do this as Hebrews 12 and verse 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus saw the reward beyond the struggle, beyond the suffering, 
that it would be for the saving of his people and the glory of God. And so we too must look at the inheritance that is before us as we seek faithfully to live for Christ in this world. Remind you of those words with which we began our service where the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. He says, in him, in Christ Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. God is in control. He has a perfect plan. And if we place our confidence in him, there will be a rich inheritance to begin. God will be glorified. He doesn't need us, but he invites us to play our part in this great unfolding story. And if God can take a young orphaned woman living far from home, surrounded by sin in the midst of this pagan empire to achieve his purposes, he can do great things in and through your life. If you will, submit it into his hands and and trust his perfect purposes that unfold even in the most trying of circumstances. The providence of God is only ever understood retrospectively. In the middle of the events, it's impossible for us to see. But we're given God's word, the Bible. We're, We're told these great stories, that they are recorded for us, that we would know that this God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is still working out his purposes in our world, in this day, in our lives. So may we trust him. May we live for him. And may we serve him, even in our brokenness and weakness, in every way we can, for his glory.